Well, as you can see, we are still living in Tuesday of the week. The week is also called Passion Week, the final week of Jesus' life on earth. And we're calling it the most important week in human history because the things our Lord taught and the things He did during this one week have touched and transformed literally billions of lives for over 21 centuries now. And this week has taken us on an ascent to the pinnacle of the New Testament, the message of the cross and the empty tomb. Once again this week, we're in Matthew chapter 25. Last weekend, we covered verses 1 through 30 in which Jesus shared two parables as warnings about His coming again and the end of time. The first parable was about the supreme importance of being ready for the bridegroom to arrive, and the second was the supreme importance of being busy until the Master returns. So today, today we will complete chapter 25 of Matthew, beginning in verse 31. And here we find a third story which reveals what we should be busy doing. It's one thing to be prepared for the bridegroom to arrive, one thing to be ready, busy, till the Master returns, but what do we need to be busy doing? Well, that's answered in this third story, which is less like a parable and more like an unparable. And maybe you've heard somewhere along the line that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Well, here Jesus inverts the order, and instead of an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, meaning we have a heavenly story with an earthly meaning. And this unparable is a story that has some twists in it, twists like, like punchlines, I suppose. Punchlines work a certain way in a joke. In a joke, humor comes from a surprise ending. The joke typically turns the story with some new unexpected twist at the end that makes us laugh even sometimes when we know it's coming. For example, here's a joke that might make the collection of the world's worst. Bear with me, it illustrates what I'm saying. I recently heard about a man who went to see a doctor, very upset. Doctor, you've got to help me. I think I'm dying here. I hurt everywhere. I touch my head, it hurts. I touch my leg, it hurts. I touch my stomach, it hurts. I touch my chest, and it hurts. You got to help me, doc. Everything hurts. So the doctor gave him a complete physical. Finally, he said, Mr. Smith, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is you are not dying. The bad news is you do have a broken finger. Okay. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> so let's read the text. And I want you to see if you can pick out a few of the twists and turns in the words of Jesus. One thing, though, before I read, they're not humorous. In fact, they are deadly serious. This is Jesus. He's talking about judgment. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When, when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Did you notice, first of all, the surprise of judgment in this passage? Jesus opened this unparable by saying in Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory. Jesus is referring to Himself. The Son of Man is the name Jesus used most often, referring to Himself. And He says here that a day of reckoning is coming. It is a matter of when. Not if, and some will be surprised by the reality and by the scope of divine judgment. Matthew 25, 32 says, all the nations, all the nations will be gathered before Him. No exceptions, rich and poor, red and yellow, black and white, Democrats and Republicans, the renowned and the unknown, the religious and the irreligious will all come under the judgment of the living God. Every Nation and language and tongue must answer to God, and it will be futile to plead the separation of church and state on that day. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 describes it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad, and it is the judgment seat of Christ. Not some nameless God, not some impersonal higher power, not some self-designated mortal. Paul surprised the intellectual Athenian audience in Acts 17, 31 when he said it this way, for God has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed and has given proof of this to all men by raising Him from the dead. 
Yes, some will be surprised by the reality of judgment when it comes. But in our more thoughtful moments, in our more thoughtful moments, most of us know that our innate desire for justice and our inner awareness of right and wrong and our instinctive dread of consequence when we know that we have violated what is morally right. These things just are not possible in the human heart without a divine origin. Our inborn sense of morality and justice necessitates ultimate accountability, and that ultimate accountability is to a Creator God. And when people personally resist or consistently deny their God-given conscience, they become capable of unimaginable evil. Well, another insight in the text is not just the surprise of judgment, but the separation of judgment. It says the nations will be divided. Matthew 25, 32, He will separate, that is the Son of Man, will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, generally speaking, sheep were the more valuable animals in the ancient world, and thus the distinction here. And the right and the left, these were common expressions in that day for positions of honor on the right or positions of dishonor on the left. And I want you to notice here that it is either or. There is no undecided category. There is no middle ground. There is no purgatory. There are no second chances. There is no negotiation. There are no plea bargains, just a final and eternal separation of humanity. Now, I know very well that some liberal theologians doubt the reality of hell. Skeptics take issue with it. Unbelievers deny it outright. But folks, whether you believe it or not, can we concede this? Jesus did. There's no way to misunderstand Matthew 25, 41, the expression eternal fire. Matthew 25, verse 46, then they, that is the goats, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous, the sheep, to eternal life. So let's not try to put words into the mouth of Jesus or take words out of the mouth of Jesus here. If you choose to disbelieve Jesus about the reality of hell, just go ahead and own it. Only the Lord Jesus, who alone sees inside, who alone can discern the heart, only the Son of Man can make this call about who is in and who is out. And He tells us here it's a straight up or down call. And that boggles my mind. Given all there is to consider about each person's life and considering the billions of people that are alive on the planet today, whether they deserve justice or mercy, that is certainly a task that is beyond you and me. And it's beyond Thurgood Marshall. And it's beyond... Judge Joe Brown, Judge Mathis, Judge Hatchett, Judge Judy are all the finite judges on earth, all put together for that matter. Here's a testimony in Hebrews 9, 27. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. So on the day of our death, or on the day of His appearing, there will be a final separation of the lost 
and saved. One more thing today. I want you to see the standard of judgment because it's not what we might expect. I think the standard of judgment could best be described in this passage in one of two ways. Number one, whether we make a disciplined investment in others or whether we are guilty of depraved indifference toward others. Let's talk about the discipline investment. The blessed in this passage are where they are because of their compassionate initiation of good works done for others in the name of Jesus. And he gives six specific behaviors. I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you cared for me. I was in prison, you visited me. Now the cursed, those on the left, they're rejected because they had refused to give such help to others. But both the sheep and the goats respond with surprise. When did we do these things? And Jesus acknowledges that He wasn't directly helped and He wasn't directly neglected, but it had really been done or not done for the least of these brothers of mine. And Jesus said that when we give our time, when we give our energy, when we give our resources to others, to the least of these, we're giving to Him. We, when we demonstrate compassion for people in need, we show our love for Him. And He references the, the hungry, and it depends on what research you look at. One out of every seven people in the world doesn't have enough to eat. Some eight million people die each year of hunger or diseases related to malnutrition. Eight million. Then Jesus mentions the thirsty. And it's hard for us to identify with that. We turn a tap at home, we get water, we go to a water fountain, fresh water. But imagine waking up every day and your main objective for that day is to find drinking water to sustain the lives of your loved ones. And you might spend the better part of a day walking and finally carrying a bucket of brackish water filled with bacteria and parasites and you know you're going to drink it, your family's going to drink it, and it's going to make you all sick. That's the daily struggle for over one billion people in the world. Then he references the naked and sick. It's been estimated that if you were to take all the children who have been orphaned because of AIDS and have them hold hands, the chain of children would stretch from New York to Los Angeles five times. Richard Stearns suggests that we imagine waking up in the morning to read in the newspaper that 100 jetliners crashed yesterday, killing a total of over 21,000 people. Now, for the last few days, the news outlets have been consumed with an airplane that is missing that had 239 people aboard. So tomorrow, you pick up the newspaper, you read, 100 jetliners have crashed, 21,000 people are dead. Can you imagine the grief, the outrage we would feel? Can you imagine the outpouring of money and volunteers that would follow such a catastrophe? Can you imagine the intensity with which governments and agencies would do everything in their power to stop such a thing from happening? Okay, then imagine you pick up your newspaper tomorrow and it happens 
again tomorrow, and the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. The fact is, it is happening every day in our world. 21,000 people die every day of preventable causes related to poverty. That's one every four seconds. And Jesus references those who are imprisoned. Do you know from 1920 to the year 2006, the population in the United States of America nearly tripled during those years. Inmates in our prisons increased during that same time period by a factor of 20. The United States has the highest documented incarceration rate in the world. Seven million people currently under correctional supervision. Three million are in federal and state prisons. That does not include 65,000 juveniles. Now, I believe that most of us in this room today are well-intentioned people. I believe some of the best-intentioned people on the planet. We want to live lives of generosity. We want to feed and clothe and visit and care for others. We want to share our faith. We want to share our resources to accomplish God's purpose in this generation. But I have to tell you, I was convicted this week by Richard Stern's paraphrase of the words of Jesus here in our text. For I was hungry, but you went out to eat again. I was thirsty, but you drank bottled water. I was a stranger, and you wanted me deported. I needed clothes but you needed more clothes. I was sick, and you pointed out the behaviors that led to my sickness. I was in prison, and you said I was getting what I deserved. I was laid low by that paragraph. Here's the thing. Those who hear the king say the words, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. These are people who have made a disciplined investment. They are not into comfort. They are into compassion. They're not into self-indulgence. They're into self-sacrifice. They're not into taking life easy. They're into taking life seriously. They're not into spending. They're into giving. They're not into being served. They're into serving. And they're making a disciplined investment. It's the essence of discipleship. Jesus said, deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. And that doesn't come naturally, folks. It's a matter of personal discipline. Okay, so what's the alternative? Well, in the text, it's, it's this, depraved indifference. Now, what's interesting in this teaching of Jesus is that He doesn't just motivate us to live a life of impact by saying, if you have done it for the least of these, you've done it for me. He does make that point, and it's positive, but He also makes the negative point. If we don't do it for the least of these, we don't do it for Him. In other words, when we turn our backs on the needy and the vulnerable, we're turning away from Jesus, and that is depraved indifference. Watch. You see, there is a caste system in heaven. 
but it's exactly backwards in the caste system this world naturally creates. This world applauds and esteems the wealthy and the powerful and the privileged and the talented. That's not how God's system works. Jesus came and he proved it. He took the lowest spot and he was God. The bigger you get in the kingdom of heaven, the lower position you take. The special ones in God's kingdom are the weak ones. The ones who can't fight for themselves, the ones that can't speak for themselves, the ones that don't have someone to feed them, the ones that don't have someone to protect them. And Jesus says, those are the prized ones. And you treat them as the royalty here on earth. And the way you treat them is ultimately the way you're treating me. What you do under the least of these is how you're ultimately treating your God. Christianity is taking what has been purchased by the cross, the behavior of heaven, nature of Jesus Christ, and transplanted it into the heart of men and women down here on earth so that they behave not like this world, but like heaven. And so when this world sees them, they're different. There is something odd about them. They are from another realm. What does it look like? It's noble. It's brave. It's courageous. It's selfless. It is willing to spend itself for the weak. I was doing some study on Liberia. If you want to be disturbed, start studying Liberia. This four-year-old boy who's sitting on the side of the road, no one to comfort, no one to take him in, no shelter, no food, nothing. So in the middle of that night, I wake up. And it's like God had already deposited a question. It was waiting to meet me when I popped awake in the middle of the night, two in the morning. I had this picture of this little boy in Liberia in front of me. And God asked me a question. What if that was Hudson, my four-year-old? Eric, what if that was Hudson? Uh, you don't mess with a father's heart. What if that was Hudson? If my boy was on the side of a road across the world from me, suffering, totally alone, not knowing what's happening. He's not old enough to comprehend this. He's abandoned. He has no one to fight for his cause, no one to give him a voice. He doesn't even know how to articulate his circumstances. He's hungry and no one's feeding him. He's starving to death. If my son is in that situation, stick a concrete wall in front of me and I claw through it with my bare hands. This is my son we're talking about. And if I couldn't get there, I would call up every friend I have. And I would say, I have a son over in Liberia. You call yourself my friend. I need you to get on a plane. And I need you to get to him. I'll give you the coordinates. I'll do whatever it takes. But I need you to get to my son and be a father to him. God's response. Eric, that's my Hudson. That is my Hudson. And he's looking to us. And he's saying, I'm calling up everyone I know. Everyone on my list that calls himself by my name, that says they're a friend of God. And I'm saying, my son is over in Liberia. Are you willing to get on the plane and get to him? We have a cause but we don't want to see it. And it's when we finally acknowledge the fact that something is wrong with us, not with the world out there. If we start with this little group here and we say, God, you need to fix this. I suffer from depraved indifference. So do you. 
Oh, we care. It's not that that doesn't move us at some level to hear about this little child over in Liberia. We care, but we can go home tonight and sleep just fine. How is that? It's because there's an indifference to that life. And it's naturally born within us that that life isn't affecting us. It's not in our backyard. We're not related to it. It's someone else's issue. In fact, we start quoting scriptures about God being a father to the fatherless. We're like, thank you, God, that you're a father to that child. He says, uh, remember, you call yourself my body. I'm not there except through you. Your hands, Eric, those are my hands. Your feet, those are my feet. That heart, that's my heart. And if it's not beating, my heart's not beating on this earth anymore. I work through my body. I'm a father to the fatherless through my body. I rescue the weak and the vulnerable through you. And if you're not doing it, no one is. Maybe you watch this and think, what can I do? Eight million people a year dying of starvation and malnutrition. A billion people in the world that need drinking water. But look again at what Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 40, verse 45. Whatever you did for one, you did for me. Whatever you did not do for one, you did not do for me. That's really an important word in these verses. One, the righteous were commended because they did something for some. One, they didn't do everything, but they did something. They didn't help everyone, but they did help someone. They didn't solve the world hunger problem. They didn't rid the world of disease or get all the homeless off the streets, but they did what they could where they were with what they had. And that's all God asks of His children in this world. And I long for the day when the church of Jesus is not known for what we are against, when we wouldn't even be known for what we believe as much as we would be known for how we love and how we give and how we serve. We'd be known for being the head and heart and hands and feet of Jesus in our world, in our generation. Beginning in our own city, which leads me to ask you to respond in a very practical way to this challenge from the words of Jesus. It just wouldn't feel right to me to end this service in our usual way. So before we conclude, surrounding this room right now are six people that are holding up placards that tell about opportunities to bless the poor and our city in just the next few weeks. Look around the room. There are three on this side, three on this side. And at these placards, we have information that will give you details about how you can make a disciplined investment of your life, remembering you're doing it for Jesus. And I want to ask you this morning to prayerfully consider going to one or more of these stations to learn about and personally respond to these needs because these needs in our area parallel what Jesus revealed in His words. There's the City Serve Day right up here. April the 5th, Saturday, April 5th, we're going to demonstrate that we care for our community 
by being a part of cleaning up the 60 Evansville area parks for the spring and summer months. This would be a great small group initiative. You may want to go to that place and devote that Saturday or most of that Saturday to this effort. Then there's the shop and drop here at Crossroads. That's April the 5th and 6th, addressing the issue of hunger here in the Evansville area. want to challenge you to empty your pantry and fill the shelves of the city food pantry. And also during this month of April, a generous donor is matching every dollar given for this purpose, dollar for dollar. It's an opportunity to double anything that you would give. A man came up to me last night after the service, very unassuming man, wearing uh, old bib overalls, and he said, you know, he said, I've got a pretty good chunk of money I think the Lord wants me to get rid of. He said, I want to know about this matching gift thing. <laughs> Heartwarming. He took it seriously. He took it personally. Community one, number one need in our city is sustainable housing for families. We have 88 projects that are currently awaiting volunteers, and a couple of hours of your time could make a huge difference, and it could get you connected with a needy family. The foster parenting challenge. You realize that our church, all by itself, could step up and solve this huge need in our city, which results in innocent children being without families, growing up in an institutional setting. There's Shoeless Sunday, April the 13th. Last year, Souls for Shoes received 15,000 pairs. That was last year. This year, we want to double it to 30,000 pairs. Can you donate shoes? Men, when your wife is away from the home this week, could you donate her shoes? There's Rise Up and Run right back there. April the 19th, can you walk, can you run? Would you like to run for a cause? Crossroads is the site for this event to address poverty in our community. Six opportunities to put into practice the very things we have read in our text, we have heard from Jesus today. Folks, God has blessed our church to be a prevailing church in this community, and that brings with it responsibilities. And He's blessed us, each of us, individually in order to be a blessing. And what you do personally and what we do as a church will inspire others. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for us as a church. And David and his team are going to come back and lead us in a time of commitment. I want to challenge you this morning while they're singing, while we're worshiping together, to move to one of these six stations and to take some information and consider how God could use you to step up and minister to some one. Will you stand on your feet with me as I pray? And then as we're led in worship, we'll move to these places, then back to your seats, and we will close. Father, today, I pray would be a red-letter day in the life of our church, in the life of this community. Lord, I pray that our witness would be demonstrated more than declared by these acts that we do, these acts of mercy and kindness, these acts of unselfishness, these acts of sacrifice. 
Lord, we, we want to make a disciplined investment. We want to find ourselves with those who experience eternal reward. And we want to be delivered from the depraved indifference that just seems to be so evident all around us. People taking care of number one, interpreting life as being for them. Lord, uh, we pray that we would change the minds of some of those even in our circles of influence, in our family circle, who may be living a life of depraved indifference. May they see our disciplined investment and take heart, take notice, and see the difference that Jesus makes. Enlarge our hearts as a church today, we pray, O oh Lord, even as we worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.